12th president of Purdue University, former governor of Indiana, and my friend since we served in the Reagan administration together, Mitchell Elias Daniels Jr. Mitch, thanks for taking the time to join us and welcome everybody to a special Plague Time edition of Uncommon Knowledge with Peter Robinson. Peter Robinson is shooting at home. You're in your office. I am. Got it. Um, on to Purdue in a moment, but first the country. You've lived in Indiana since the 1970s. You served as governor for eight years on protests this past Friday in Indianapolis, the state capital. And I'm quoting from the Indianapolis Star. The protest started peacefully, but as night fell, it turned violent. At least 30 businesses were damaged. A drugstore was set ablaze. Some stores were looted. How does the president of Purdue University hope his students think about what is taking place in the country? We don't have any students to speak of here on campus right now for the obvious reason. So it's a little hard to gauge how uh, they view this or react to this. Um, I hope with the same sadness that I think most of us feel, um, one can only hope that justice is brought where, it's, uh, where it appears to be so uh, obviously necessary, where this all started, and that others, other people uh, conclude that harming others and innocent people is not the appropriate response and is, and is not a is not an effective way to advance a good cause. All right. Um, Heather McDonald in the City Journal last night, the ideological handmaiden of this violence, academia, has already sprung into action. The chancellors and presidents of Harvard, the University of Arizona, the University of Pennsylvania, Yale, among others, have released statements over the weekend assuring their students of their school's commitment to racial equality. No college leader denounced the violence. Too early for a comment, or is there a general failing on the part of academic, academia in this country? I, I don't know, Peter. I haven't, I haven't tracked what all are saying. Uh, um, I, I think probably some of them spoke before the uh, violence uh, the, or the worst of it occurred. Um, I, I can't believe that any of those people uh, condone, let alone uh, uh, approve of uh, the harm that comes to folks, you know, three people were killed in Indianapolis over the weekend. Oh, they were. I didn't read that. Well, you didn't. It was in the middle of paragraph five of this morning's article. Maybe the paper had had not had enough time to catch up to the events further, but um, those were... Uh, at least uh, the ones I know about, those were African-Americans. They were not killed by police officers. Their lives surely matter uh, as much as anyone's. So I, I, I don't uh, take uh, um, the silence of those who you, uh, uh, as necessarily reflecting their viewpoints, and uh, I'm sure they don't. All right. The, uh, the reopening, two quotations, Mitch, if I may, if I'm uh, President Daniels, former Governor Daniels, but I can't help myself. We've known each other so long. Uh, Mitch. You were right the first time. All right. President Christopher Eisgruber of Princeton, your own alma mater. This is in a statement to the Princeton community of a few days ago. Princeton will wait until early July before deciding whether our undergraduate teaching program will be online or residential in the fall term, close quote. President Mitch Daniels, 
of Purdue in a recent column in the Washington Post, quote, 45,000 young people are telling us they want to be here this fall. To tell them, sorry, we're too incompetent or too fearful to figure out how to protect your elders, so you have to disrupt your education, would be a gross disservice to them and a default of our responsibility, close quote. What does Purdue know that Princeton doesn't? I think we're in very different situations. Uh, We have, what, uh, uh, seven or eight times as many uh, students here as there. Maybe they can afford to wait that long. The reason that we enunciated our position as early as we did really was a practical one, Peter, Um, uh, namely that uh, there, are, there is a lot to do if we're going to completely transform the way we teach, the way we house, the way we feed, the way we conduct all our activities here on this campus in a way that protects people, uh, certainly those who are at, at, uh, at risk and greatest risk. Um, and uh, we, I just thought we needed every day. We, uh, I, we have an extraordinarily detailed uh, action plan across six different realms, um, learning and, uh, and, and curriculum, uh, physical facilities, testing and tracing and surveillance and so forth. And I'm sitting on top of those teams on a daily basis. And uh, we, are, we believe we're in a race with the calendar to be as prepared as we can be. And I at our scale, I think it would have been a, a serious practical mistake to uh, wait. Uh, obviously, the longer we wait, the more we know, and there will be more information. But sometimes in life, you have to act, you have to act on the information that you have. And, and we thought we had enough to justify moving. All right. I can't draw you into attacking people I now realize have become your colleagues, the presidents and chancellors and so forth of this country. So I'm going to stop I'm going to quit that line of attack, which, uh, which was one I was really looking forward to. I was going to try hard to draw you to, yeah. to, to say. Well, th- I okay. try not to attack anyone, but, uh, <laughs> but you can keep, but uh, go ahead, have at it, Peter. Maybe you can, well, maybe you can well, suck no, notion, This notion, it seems to me pretty implicit. That is strong language, a gross disservice to our students. You point out in the same column that it's very clear. What almost no other university president is saying is obvious to everyone at this point. As a matter of fact, the way you put it, uh, the chance of dying from COVID-19 for a college student, because for some reason we don't yet understand youth is is an infallible protection, nearly infallible protection against this virus. The chance of dying of COVID-19 for a college student doesn't even make the top 10 causes of death lower than car accidents, lower than suicides. And overwhelmingly, the population of your campus is students. So why, it seems to me, you're saying pretty clearly, why should it be beyond the wit of our institutions to be able to protect the professors while permitting the students to come back? And that would seem to me to be an argument that has pretty broad application, even beyond West Lafayette. But I can't draw you on that. You just summed up the, the facts as we understand them and, and our point of view as we have expressed it. I mean, but let me, uh, you know, go a step further, Peter. Um, uh, we had already been involved, other schools had, but we might have been a, a little more deeply involved already in online education, trying to see how you right. could make it as 
effective as possible. And then of course this spring, everybody had to accelerate their efforts there. So we've all learned a lot, we certainly have. Um, this fall, uh, we will, because we have to, have what amounts to a full, certainly an adequate menu of courses available, uh, in particular so that any freshman or sophomore can continue remotely if they either have to, for instance, if they can't get a visa to be here. Oh, I see, right. Or if they choose to, because they, having viewed all the precautions, and we'll let them know all the extraordinary things we're doing, all the investments we're making, but uh, if they conclude or their families do that it's still um, uh, too iffy, then we'll have this option for them. No one has to you're come. Not, you're not they insisting the kids this, come this back. Fall. That's right. Um, now, I will say um, there's a reciprocal message that we'll be sending, and that is if you're planning to come to campus, which clearly the vast majority want to do, and believe is, is important to their getting the full education that we try to provide. If you're planning to come to campus, uh, then it, it, we, uh, we expect you to pitch in. There's a Protect Purdue pledge, which we have devised. It's very specific, everything from monitoring one's own symptoms, taking one's own temperature, self-quarantining at the first sign, submitting to testing, wearing a mask indoors at all times, and so forth. And we'll be saying to the kids, if you're not prepared to do that, then you better take the online option because we're going to need everybody's cooperation um, to uh, make this place safe uh, as, as, can, as it can be. You mentioned that you were a little ahead in going online. Were you ever? In 2017, you purchased an online for-profit educational enterprise, Kaplan University. Lots of people will be familiar with the name Kaplan from the test prep company, which I believe the Washington Post still owns. You just bought the online Kaplan University. You renamed it Purdue Global. What was the thinking? The thinking was twofold. First of all, that there was a great universe of people uh, uh, interested maybe in a a college degree and a, and a credential uh, that we were not reaching at all. Purdue Global has very, very few 18 to 22 year old students starting from scratch. Uh, the audience it addresses is that astonishingly high number of Americans, 35 to 40 million of them who are adults, they're working. They have, many have family obligations as well. Um, that's the number of people who started college and didn't finish. I'm not even talking about those who never got started at all. And um, 35 to 40 million yes, started, but didn't finish. Twice as many such people as all the 18 to 24 year olds on the campuses that we typically talk about and think about. So we're a land grant school. We were placed here uh, in the post-Civil War era with our sister schools to expand access to higher education very broadly. And in today, in the 21st century, we decided a land-grant school needs to add, I, I call it the, sometimes the third concentric circle. So we started with what uh, Abe Lincoln and his allies called the sons of toil. It's an antiquated um, uh, term today, but the sons and daughters of the working class, basically. And uh, after, after the uh, Second World War, the GI Bill expanded things even right. further to many, uh, at that time, men who had missed out on college because they were doing something 
rather important uh, for the future of the country. And now I, I think of this as the third circle, working adults in a world, in a knowledge economy where uh, uh, a post-secondary credential matters a lot to income and job prospects uh, as a way to reach them. So that was, that was reason number one, and we're very pleased with it. We have a growing number, uh, well over 30,000 uh, students. Mm -hmm. We just graduated another thousand at the most recent uh, virtual commencement the other and day. And people, Purdue Global provides what kind of certificate or degree or diploma? Uh, under uh, basically bachelor's degrees and and many masters. Really? Uh, yes. These are not and, just certificate programs. These are no, real no, diplomas from Purdue no, University. No, these are degree programs. Uh, a typical student gets credit for the or some credit for the college that they attempted before, possibly for the military service and training they got there, things like that. Right, right. Uh, but uh, now there was a second reason, and, uh, uh, and that is that I felt we were not making any reasonable progress at, at, the, at Purdue proper uh, toward uh, um, uh, uh, the capabilities in online or remote or digital education that the future was going to demand. And I thought we could learn a lot from people who had been doing that successfully, and we have. But I, I do want to differentiate, because many people just don't understand this, the audiences that we're serving Right. Uh, almost everybody at Purdue or its regional campuses is a younger person, um, um, either fresh out of high school or not long out. Uh, almost everybody at Purdue Global, the typical student there is a 33-year-old uh, woman who's working and has uh, some family responsibilities. Great. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Now, Purdue Global and the lockdown. I've heard, I have friends who work in education and the scramble, I have been told, the scramble to produce online course material uh, among elite institutions and all the way down to the certificate granting for-profit institutions has been remarkable. Mm -hmm. Question to you, and I know because of conversations you and I have had over the years, that you had doubts about the sustainability of the very expensive high-end four-year residential model as the modal experience for college education. Have you learned anything through Purdue Global or do you, looking at the scene, the wreckage almost of higher education as this lockdown continues, do you, do you see that this may be a, an inflection point or other people thinking, what, what do you make of the current moment and online education versus the four-year residential experience? What I make of it is that, uh, as we see in many, many other uh, contexts, a, uh, and as has been observed uh, very often uh, in crises of the past, an event like this doesn't so much uh, trigger a brand new trend as it accelerates those that were already uh, uh, somewhere in train. And there are two obvious ones, at least two in the case of higher ed. One is the development of online uh, education, which uh, uh, some of us were forced to speed up and some people were forced to start from scratch. Right. Um, by the way, I think it's pretty clear that the events of this spring have convinced a lot of people that in-person education is really uh, uh, better in many ways. We believe at Purdue, and, and, and it's our absolute 
determination that the content of the course be just as good whichever mode is being used. Right. But the online cannot the version cannot replicate uh, the uh, interaction with faculty, the interaction with fellow students who may be studying the same thing, the, uh, you know, let's be honest, the socialization and maturity process that can happen at, at, at a uh, college campus. And so, um, uh, in any event, uh, we, we certainly discern uh, a, uh, among those students who now spent part of this spring, either as a high school senior, maybe especially as a high school senior, or as a college student who was suddenly thrust back into the home, uh, a belief that uh, they, they want to get back to campus. I, we think in some part it might be the parents, you know, happy to see the little darlings run off too, but... Um, Speaking as the father of a high school senior. <laughs> for whatever reason, uh, we had, I'll just tell you, our uh, on the day we're recording this, uh, we've just closed the acceptance process with an astonishing... 12% increase over last year's record in terms of the number of deposits we received. It's um, it, it, it's clear that the, the interest is, is is there to be here. So um, that's that's one trend. The other one, which I think is closer to the heart of your question, is that the uh, the model, at least as practiced at places where the sticker price has gone up stratospherically. Um, is now under even more pressure than it already was. People were already beginning to question uh, the uh, astonishing uh, uh, tuitions and fees and, and, and other costs. And now, um, uh, much more so, I've sometimes said that I'm, we really must worry about some very, very fine little uh, private liberal arts schools, which are not uh, abundantly endowed, and have been uh, and have allowed their costs and to rise so much. I've, I've, I've sometimes thought of them as the, you know, 80-year-old uh, heart patients uh, of of this of this uh, event. Yes. Namely, that they were already fragile and endangered, and now this virus uh, may uh, uh, um, unfortunately may uh, prove fatal. Mitch, let me give you a contrast, if I may. Speaking of one of those fine little liberal arts institutions, although this one is well endowed. Princeton tuition in 2013, the year you became president of Purdue, $40,170. Princeton tuition today, $51,879. Purdue, in-state tuition, the year you became president, 2013, $9,992. Purdue in-state tuition today, $9,992. And since becoming president in 2013, you have cut the costs of room, board, and books. While, uh, by all kinds of objective measures, improving the quality of your faculty. I don't mean to indicate disregard toward the faculty who are already in place, but your hires have been remarkable. So you have improved the quality of Purdue University while cutting the costs, while costs everywhere else, including your alma mater, I continue to attempt to draw you on the matter of Princeton, <laughs> costs everywhere else have spiraled. All right, I've already encountered this modesty and this reticence about whacking the rest of American higher education 
But if you can do, first of all, how have you done it? And why can't other people do it as well? Why isn't the market working? Why aren't institutions across the country saying, wait a minute, let's do what Daniels is doing? Well, I think the market's uh, started working. And as I just described, right especially given the, uh, the damage we've inflicted on the American economy, on people's incomes and so forth, um, it's, it's about to operate in a much more, uh, I think, virulent uh, fashion than it already has. Uh, you know, how, how do we operate the question, Peter? I've, I've taken to answering by, exp by dispelling people's uh, suspicions one by one and talking about how we didn't do it. For one thing, that freeze you talked about applied to everybody, not just the in-state students, all the uh, Californians and Texans and, and all the international students that we have. We didn't do it by adding to the international population. We actually been reducing it for several years. Mm -hmm. Still have a significant one, and I'm glad. It makes for a lot of variety on this campus, but uh, as a percentage, we brought it way down from where it was uh, before. Um, uh, we certainly haven't gotten any more money from our state. We are a public school, and we appreciate the support our fellow taxpayers uh, give us, but it's been flat over this time period. Uh, we have not switched uh, to con so-called contingent or temporary or less expensive faculty, which a lot of schools have quietly done. Our, our tenure track um, uh, faculty percentage is one of the highest in the entire country. And as you said, we, uh, we have invested, we've added faculty as fast as we've added students. So some of the, those are some of the things people imagine we might have right. been doing, but that, that's not fair. I mean, uh, we've raised, we have uh, raised the salaries of faculty and staff at or above the peer median every single year. So it's none of those things. Uh, clearly, uh, we have been able to attract more students and we have welcomed more students. And, um, and so uh, as in business, a strong top line uh, is, is a good place to start. We have been careful everywhere we can be with costs. I think there's so much more we can and should do, but we've probably been able to, uh, by, by focusing people on the students, uh, I, I even devised, it was really sort of just an accounting uh, gimmick device, but uh, at the outset, a student affordability fund, and when we effect a savings or an efficiency, uh, we we literally transfer those dollars there to make sure we don't they don't get spent on something else, which is a human tendency and it's certainly a tendency in higher ed. And we've we've said to people right along that the, the more we can do this, the more affordable and accessible a place Purdue will be. Um, that's really our mission. Um, not every school would see their mission quite that way, but uh, so far so good. And and now we'll have to see in the in the new era, but uh, again, uh, it appears that we'll have a, uh, a very strong complement of students with us. In fact, our worry, our worry if we have one right now is, uh, will we be able to operate in the new normal circumstance of, of safety uh, for all with uh, a place that crowded? Got it. Got it. Well, okay, we'll see why the market, I know you've already demonstrated that I can't draw you on the matter of the rest, everybody else in higher education, but the market is sticky at the very least, isn't it? If you can hold tuition, by the way, so Haley, our friend Haley Barber, former governor of Mississippi, he told me, he mentioned to me once when he was governor, turns out anybody can cut 
the next 10% is really hard. You've been there for seven years now. You're sure you're not getting to bone when you start, when you keep cutting? Oh, I'm sure. Um, the, uh, uh, Bob Gates, uh, a famous American, great, great uh, um, figure of our time, was one of the first people I talked to when I was approached about this job and really didn't know whether it would make any sense or not. And, uh, and uh, so I, I called him for advice in addition to these many uh, uh, public sector capacities. As you probably know, he was the president of Texas A&M. Right. Very similar school. Um, and he said to me, he said, I told my friends, my colleagues at A&M, he said, there's, we do three things here as a land grant school, teaching, research, and engagement. Me, uh, meaning taking uh, our research and the, and, the, and the knowledge we create out effectively. Well, people and use it, right. State. He said, now, if you're not doing one of these three things, um, we have to ask what you're doing. And uh, there's still some things we do that don't fit under any of those uh, headings. All right, all right. Mitch, the question of values. Purdue University land-grant institutions founded in 1869, over 100 and, just over 150 years ago, you celebrated your 150th anniversary last year. And in those days, I'm going to assert, no university in America needed to spell out its fundamental or underlying values because the Judeo-Christian worldview was so implicitly assumed across the country. And now, of course, we have far fewer Americans who accept that worldview and I'm just wondering, I listen to your commencement addresses. I listen to you talk about your mission as a land grant university. All of this comes from a deep sense of values. I, I'm sure that's what makes your commencement addresses resonate. Every single one of them goes viral. I check on YouTube and commencement addresses from years back have hundreds of thousands of views. But how do you if you're not allowed to assume, as I suppose the position in which you sit now means that you're not allowed to assume, if you're not allowed to assume that your audience is overwhelmingly Christian with some sprinkling of Jewish believers, but now you have to, how do you, how do you, where do you derive your values? Where do you find the common values that permit you to talk about not just technical achievement, which there's plenty of that out here at universities in California, but you also talk about character and moral. Let's take one example, freedom of speech. How do you derive freedom of speech? And you have insisted on it at Purdue in a way, again, I know you won't attack your colleagues in the profession, but very few, other than the University of Chicago, almost no one has taken as strong a stance insisting on freedom of speech as Mitch Daniels has at Purdue. Where does the value come from? How do you, how do you found it? Or how do you ground it rather? Well, it's a very good example. Uh, and so there are a couple ways uh, that that can be uh, answered. I mean, one is that this is a, um, a fundamental human right. Even people whose um, worldview these days, uh, I, I might, worry about. I might find authoritarian or, um, or uh, uh, overly uh, paternalistic, 
uh, disrespectful of individual dignity, but uh, e even folks like that, I think, believe uh, uh, that uh, freedom of speech is a, a right that they have and that all of us uh, do. But uh, it's very interesting, I think, in the higher ed context, uh, it's been well pointed out that uh, uh, limitations on speech are the enemy of, of knowledge. Knowledge cannot advance except through the collision of ideas. Uh, John Stuart Mill said, uh, if I get this right, uh, when um, uh, both the sentry, uh, the sentry goes to sleep when the uh, enemy leaves the field, something like that. His point being that, that um, uh, it's only the, uh, through argument, it's only through challenge, it's only through those, the heretics who uh, 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 don't believe that, uh, that uh, uh, a given scientific uh, a theory, of the, the science of today is uh, exactly correct, that knowledge advances. And so the entire um, core of higher ed is threatened when, um, when uh, uh, a speech is conformity of thought and conformity of speech is, is enforced either uh, directly or through a peer pressure. All right. I'm going to ask a question that may be a problem for you. So if you want to duck it, I'll understand. But of course, you served, you served as chief of staff to the legendary Indiana Senator Richard Lugar, Republican. You served as OMB director for President George W. Bush. Republican. So I am sure that you have to be very careful among to demonstrate that you're not partisan in your current, I know this because we've talked about it, you have to demonstrate you're not partisan in your current position. However, all right, here's a quotation from Yuval Levin's new book, A Time to Build. It was published earlier this year. Marvelous book. In 1969, a quarter of American professors described themselves as right of center. By 1999, the figure was down to 12%. Recent surveys have put the number below one in 10, and the situation is far worse in the social sciences and the humanities. As political scientist John Shields noted in 2018, quote, by some prominent measures, Republicans make up 4% of historians, 3% of sociologists, and a mere 2% of literature professors, close quote. All right, of course you're not going to go around Purdue and saying you, are you a Democrat or Republican? Your faculty wouldn't begin to stand for even the, the merest in indication that you were thinking in those terms. On the other hand, if you have academia monolithically on one side of the political spectrum, that means your recruiting pool is tainted or at least affected, I shouldn't say tainted. How do you deal with this when the argument is it's become so extreme that it affects the ability of the institution to give the kids a straightforward education. Well, in no sense, there's no point in arguing about the facts. They've been established over and over and over, over again. And, over. and, and uh, Yuval was only the most recent to, to tally them up. It's it's so uh, I don't think it's a great mystery. Um, uh, higher ed is a self-selection process, uh, basically. And, and uh, uh, you know, we've all seen uh, 
oh, corporate boards of directors select people like themselves, yes, and, uh, yes. sometimes to the detriment of the uh, enterprise, but it's just a human trait. And, uh, and so no sense uh, uh, spending much more time on that. Again, I would just say that we, uh, we try to remind everyone, and I will say that, that uh, uh, there are many people who uh, have the who hold to the views you just described, who do, I think, um, uh, understand and, and, and advocate for um, freedom and diversity of, of thought. Um, the uh, Chicago principles, uh, um, which some of us named them uh, uh, after the university uh, put them out, and some of us uh, quickly adopted them, were written by a... Uh, um, an old lion, uh, Jeffrey Stone, of the uh, of the democratic side of the world of, of uh, the original civil rights uh, movement and so forth. So uh, uh, I don't necessarily despair at that. We do try to be vigilant to make certain that people are not being told, but they're being told what to think as opposed to how to think. Mm -hmm. And it happens now and then, and we. Um, report the complaint promptly as we would any harassment complaint. And uh, hopefully uh, uh, it, 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 the, the behavior is not repeated. But um, we here at Purdue are in a little better position, I think, than most. And, and uh, Peter, very honestly, first of all, we are uh, one of the most STEM-centric, um, to use the, the current acronym, schools in the country, more than two-thirds of our students are studying a scientific discipline, something founded on objective facts, and right. uh, and therefore the people teaching them are, uh, they probably have uh, strong views about public I issues, but that's not the content of the class. It's not the focus of their careers. And, um, uh, you know, secondly, we, uh, although we draw students from everywhere and uh, about only about half our students are from Indiana, but there is to some extent, I believe, a, a different center of gravity here, a little more of a um, of a balanced uh, perspective that the uh, both the faculty and the students bring. So um, I'm not disputing the reality of of the facts you reported. Uh, I'm not uh, 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 arguing that it makes no difference and it's just fine. That uh, no, I think. Uh, um, that uh, uh, diversity of thought is is at least as important as all the other forms of diversity that get more attention, and uh, and I hope that uh, I hope that some of the excesses of recent years have brought about a little more reflection, a little more balance. You know, the the uh, for whatever it means, the episodes of of uh, harassment, of disinvitation of speakers. Right. Uh, of, of blatant um, uh, in, indoctrination of students appears to have um, moderated somewhat, and, and I hope that'll continue. All right. A couple of last questions based on your online commencement address of a couple of weeks ago. In my own college days, I'm quoting you, a briefly famous Harvard professor offered probably the worst advice ever given to a younger generation? Explain. Oh, I just did a little turn on the uh, once uh, uh, widely known, I don't know that 
any of Kids our students of today, him, or maybe even their parents remember the Timothy Leary, but uh, he he got his 15 minutes, maybe a half an hour of Andy Warhol's uh, uh, fame back then. And uh, he said, you know what, uh, turn on, uh, tune out, uh, uh, drop out. Uh, and I, I suggested maybe inverting all that. This was in the context of, of drawing to our students, our graduates' attention, the uh, danger that in a uh, highly digitized, uh, technologically dazzling world that we live in, that it's too easy to slip into, uh, into uh, uh, limiting one's human contact to things like we're doing right now or, or less. Right. And that, um, that uh, our success as a species has come from our ability to uh, communicate and to collaborate and to uh, interact with each other. And there are all, there's all sorts of evidence. I didn't think any of this up. I was, I'm just watching the literature grow and the concerns grow about loneliness, good heavens, uh, among our young people um, that uh, it, it no longer can be uh, blinked away. It's real. And uh, so I was encouraging them to tilt in, lean against this, this trend. You know, in it's, it's a little bit related to uh, another couple speeches I've given to previous classes about the big sort. I've right. said to them, if you're not careful, you're now an aristocrat. Now, you, didn't, you don't think of yourselves that way. And it's not based on land or inherited wealth or the title or your father's a commissar in the, you know, in the Communist Party. You're an aristocrat because of what you've learned here and the and this the skills that you're taking into a knowledge economy. And I said, if if you don't make an effort, you may work with, live near, marry someone just like you, and. Uh, You'll 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 um, uh, short yourself in life if you only associate with people uh, who are similar. Well, I think this so-called loneliness epidemic is the next um, a step down that uh, down that stairway that I hope we uh, will turn around and march back up. You continued in your online commencement address of a couple of weeks ago. You talked about geographic stability. You cautioned the kids to think twice about moving and moving and moving in their careers. Live near your friends. Give that some thought. Here's another piece of advice you offered. I'm quoting you. Nothing statistically reduces the chance of loneliness more than marriage, especially marriage with children, close quote. I'm reading this and thinking, do those kids know that they have a president who is a a radical counter cult, a radical member of the counter culture. But so, so a couple of closing questions. Let's put it this way. Defend the well, Midwest. You, if you're going to yeah, leave go that, ahead. Let, me, let me just say, Peter, um, you, you can read that any way you want, but those are, those, we're, we're data driven here at Purdue University. As I said, okay. STEM school, each contention in that in that speech, or frankly, ones before it, comes comes with ample uh, empirical evidence behind it. I'm not making these things up. They they may happen in some cases to be consistent with what 
that you might call a value that I have, have embraced at some point. But that's not that's no basis for me to offer that as a um, uh, as 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 advice. So as is that how you information? You know, I I think I'm I I I can do this because there's more than ample uh, documentation for it. So is that how you've done what you've done? Here you are, Republican to the fingertips, two-term governor, Republican governor of Indiana, and you walk into a university where you know most of the faculty thinks quite differently about politics. Many of the students, I don't know how popular Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were on your campus, but more popular than in your secret mind you might have been pleased to see, and yet you've done it. And is it the, is that the... Is that what you've done? You've taken what you view as the common sense Midwestern values with which you've grown up, but found or fitted them, fitted them to data, to, to a rigorous technical sociological point of view. I'm putting it crudely, and it may be a stupid idea in the first place. Let's see what you do with it. Is that what you've done somehow, though? I don't think, I wouldn't say it that way. No. And first, I feel obliged to get it on the record yet again. I mean, we live our life in chapters, Peter, and I, uh, uh, a lot of folks don't know or wouldn't know, but, you know, the longest stretch of my working life wasn't in government, wasn't in politics, wasn't in yeah, higher right. ed, it was in business. You know, I guess right. I went, I was a good voter, but I wasn't a, an active political figure. For a very long time, and I'm not now. On the day I accepted this job, I still had six months to go in the last job. There was a campaign that fall. I abstained from it, which was not well received by my allies at the time in the in the Republican Party. But I asked them to understand that they had a respect for a public institution. I was I I was done with partisan politics as long as I was here. I have not had. Uh, a single thing to say, taken a single active step, made a dollar of donation, nothing uh, in uh, partisan politics uh, from that moment on. So um, with that disclaimer, uh, I, I think I'd just say that um, I, I've simply tried to do right by this institution. I believe in its uh, mission. Uh, I believe in, in its value, particularly to the state that supports it, but beyond. I'm talking now about um, the need. Uh, the, uh, we've invested heavily. You know, we're the largest engineering school in the top six, eight, ten in the country right now. Um, we are uh, one of the largest computer science schools. We're trying to turn out talent of all kinds, but particularly the kinds that. Uh, that, that are, we believe, serve the state and national interest, um, especially. And um, so uh, that's what I'm about here. And um, if, I, if I speak to some of these other matters now and then, and it's, it's uh, mainly then, you know, maybe once a year at commencement time, um, I try to do it um, as we would expect any Purdue faculty member too, uh, on the basis of on some basis of fact, not merely opinion or some visceral view that I might hold. All right. Last question then. I, no, I, I've been looking at your commencement addresses. In 2018, you warned against the big sort on the grounds that it was for a self-governing people, it's poison. 
you've spoken self-governing people. You've spoken just now about the state and national interest. And you place Purdue, often when you speak, you place Purdue firmly in the American tradition. You're a land-grant university with a specific mission, a specific geography, one of the great institutions in the middle of the country that was founded with a specific purpose in the American tradition. Mm -hmm. All right. I contrast this with the ethos at some campuses where we of this, of Campus X, belong not to any individual nation, but to the world. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you'd address that, but that's just not the way you walk and talk and say things. This country matters to you still. So how would you, we've been through a, we've been through a remarkable time when first the government locked us up and then in the last few days, it's proven incapable of protecting life and property. And we're about to go through what Lord knows is going to be an election season that we'd all, we might wish to go to sleep right now and wake up on the other side and just skip it. What do you, what would you say to students at Purdue, overwhelmingly Americans, although you do have a large international population, I want to stipulate that to save you the time of doing so. What do you say to students at Purdue about the American project? Is it still worth their time or is the whole thing, are the wheels coming off and should they just pay attention to their families and their careers? How, do, how should they think about this? I guess I would start by saying that um, the nation, this, this is a nation uh, founded on the, um, with a commitment to individual freedom and dignity that Purdue University was created very much as an extension of that project. Project's a good word. We're a work in process. We, we are still very imperfect. And we, um, more I think than most people's Americans have uh, always held themselves uh, up for inspection and, and uh, been self-critical and we better always be. But it's still um, an exercise in self-government, the kind that is fitted to to people of dignity, creatures of dignity, individuals um, and of dignity. And, um, but, you know, I guess I would tell them if they asked me directly, this will be for you to decide. Every generation of Americans has to decide what kind of people will we be? Uh, what kind of nation will we have? If at some point we decide the problems are just too big or they're just kind of, we can't work them out among ourselves uh, that, uh, uh, you know, we need a, uh, a higher authority, a dictator of some kind, uh, then um, uh, I guess that free people can choose such a future if they want. Um, I have stubbornly uh, believed that Americans ultimately wouldn't do that, wouldn't put up with that. But there, um, there are always going to be folks, even in, certainly in this country and ev everywhere, who are eager to order life for the rest of for everybody else. Never any shortage of people uh, ready to uh, uh, come uh, either out of their out of benevolence or maybe malevolence, but uh, in any event to um, tell other people what to do and what not to do. Um, and um, uh, I, I believe that the kind of young people that we educate at this place ultimately will uh, number will first not uh, freely submit to that themselves. 
They will want to make their own decisions, lead their own lives. And secondly, that I hope they'll be the kind of people who can work with others. Um, that one speech you talked about, I was the, I talked about tribalism, which is now right. become a, um, a very commonly used term. And um, uh, I think I said uh, at the, near the end of that talk, you know, boilermakers uh, build, need to build bridges of all kinds, not just across the physical the kind, but bridges uh, uh, across these divides uh, that have uh, that have uh, now riven uh, our our nation and our culture. And I still hope that higher ed, uh, done well here and in countless other schools, will contribute to uh, a way out of this uh, you know current troubling time that leaves us a free people and a self-governing one. Mitch Daniels, 12th president of Purdue University, thank you. Always fun, Peter, thanks. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson. Thank you.